When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Well, good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Kat Zakreski, national tech policy reporter here at the Washington Post. And we have two wonderful guests today. I'm joined by Congressman Don Beyer, a Democrat from Virginia, and Congressman Marcus Molinaro, a Republican from New York. Congressman, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're glad to be with you, and I, I just want to extend my thanks to, to Don and, and certainly to all of you. This is a great platform. We appreciate the conversation. Well, thank you. And it I is. want to dive right in, Congressman Byer, and ask you a little sure. bit about your work as vice chair of the AI caucus in Congress. We've seen a number of proposals introduced by you and your colleagues on AI, but we haven't yet seen any of those proposals become law. When are we going to see some movement? Well, I hope right away. Um, you know, the AI caucus is, was primarily put together to educate the members of Congress and their staffs on what AI is and, and how it's developing. We had some really interesting speakers, the Sam Altmans and the, the Jack Clarks and others. Um, but Kevin McCarthy, when he was still speaker, put together an informal working group, including Marcus and myself, to try to actually bring bills to the floor, to pass bills this year. And then, you know, the, it happened, and Kevin's no longer what with us. What are you us. talking about, Don? <laughs> <I know. Yeah. laughs> and, and so things have slowed down a little bit. And the new speaker, Mike Johnson, it's, it's, I believe it's his intention to stand up this um, bipartisan working group to make things happen. He's been a little distracted recently, um, but we're hoping that it will happen this month. And Congressman Molinaro, do you have any perspective on how Speaker Johnson is thinking about this and what direction he might go in with that working group? Yeah, I, I think the Speaker uh, accepts both uh, the need to get the working group up and functional to move legislation and also understands both the potential benefit and risks of AI and, and establishing the basic framework. Um, but to Don's point and to uh, everything we all know, uh, it has been a year of unnecessary and unlimited distractions. And, um, you know, I wish that we were a bit more, um, you know, uh, advanced on some of these policies. We have digital currency legislation that's waiting uh, for uh, floor time. Uh, and like all things, I, you know, I'm, I'm new to Congress, but I certainly have watched uh, the federal government function. And I know that my colleague knows this. You know, too often we are too far behind. This last year has really caused us to be even further behind. And Congressman Byer, on that point, we saw about a year ago the Senate set up its own working group. They've been having their forums hosted by Senator Schumer with some of the CEOs you just mentioned, as well as Elon Musk and others. Does the House risk, be, risk falling behind the Senate right now? I don't think we've ever been behind the Senate. <laughs> uh, so, although I think in general, in Congress, Senate, and House, we risk falling way behind the American people. Uh, typically, we're always trying to catch up with where the people are. And uh, you know, the, we don't have the 60-vote limit, which helps us um, in the House. But even better on AI, this has been remarkably bipartisan so far. Um, lots and lots of great discussions. I think we all want to avoid what we didn't do on social media, which is basically nothing um, over the last 24 years, uh, uh, other than make sure they can't be sued. Um, that's all. So, yeah. And 
I mean, I guess, Congressman, I wanted to ask you, just given we know that Senator Schumer is working on a framework on AI, he says that's coming soon. Do you see common ground right now between House Republicans and Senate Democrats when it comes to AI policy? Well, I'm very careful not to assume I know what any or most of my Republican or Senate uh, uh, Democrat colleagues are thinking at any given moment, uh, because that is likely to change at any given moment. Uh, but I, no, I, I think there is. I mean, listen, I, I, I'll use the digital currency uh, conversation and to Don's point, social media. I think, I think we recognize in a bipartisan, bicameral way we were slow to and didn't obviously create uh, the framework or guidelines in the social media space, both to respect uh, uh, intellectual property, personal freedoms, uh, but also the protection of uh, identities and children. We relate to all of that. Uh, I think we acknowledge and know that we have to be um, working much more collaboratively, which is why, again, I, I do think we're going to be moving uh, digital currency guidelines soon. Uh, and then our work, I think, will, will advance pretty rapidly. And there's, and there's room for, for both common ground and agreement. And you both have brought up social media. You've both brought up common ground. I've been covering tech policy for more than five years, and I've heard a lot about how there's bipartisan agreement on kids' safety, on privacy, a lot of these issues. Why is AI any different? I think because of all the things, well, all those things are important, right? Um, but the AI, I think, has the possibility to change our lives in untold ways, ways we can't even imagine. We're seeing every week the advances in healthcare, the diagnoses of different kinds of cancer, the development of new medicines. Um, we're all going to live to be 120 um, because of this. But there are also downsides. I think somebody very well said the other day, it makes good things much better and bad things much worse. And so our job is not to suppress the extraordinary advantages that are going to come from AI, but to make sure we address the known downsides as best we can. And can I, I, I try to explain this, uh, actually I'll say this, to my 14-year-old son. Um, social media is the extension of our humanness, right, good and bad. AI is artificial humanness. It is, it is, it is very much rapid, it, it moves faster than we do, uh, and the potential and risk is much, uh, is much greater, uh, certainly, than the social media platform space. Uh, but uh, it is an extension of us. Uh, and, and frankly, I, I got into this space uh, because of the potential that it provides in the intellectual and developmental disability space, neurodivergence, uh, and being able to help individuals who struggle to kind of connect with the world, use the technology uh, to, to more adequately and more ably do that. And so I think we acknowledge the broad scope, the broad potential, whether it's healthcare or national defense, but also the risk, the risk to harm humans, the risk to harm people, and the risk to harm institutions. And on that topic of risks, Congressman Beyer, what are you most worried about when it comes to AI? What keeps you up at night? Well, the, the short term and the most obvious thing is what it does to creative destruction of jobs. We know there's going to be a lot of displacement. Sometimes you hear numbers in the 20 percent um, of, of all jobs in the world. Uh, although that's also been true in the agricultural revolution, the technology revolution. We will adapt, but it will be a painful adaptation. Uh, the, more, the more concerning things, I think, are about election security, about privacy. I don't much worry about the existential risks, although I think it's always important that we pay attention to that because some very smart people are worried about you know, the end of humanity. And Congressman, how about you? 
Well, other than the end of humanity. Uh, <laughs> we can agree on that. Yeah, right? we do. <laughs> Although when very smart people start worrying about things, we should probably start thinking about worrying about those things. Um, I worry about election integrity, certainly. Um, and to Don's point, I'm, obviously the erosion and the impact on, on jobs. Uh, but just the, um, I, I think that for me, the, the base concern uh, is intellectual property and, and human identity uh, in this concept that uh, all of that is at risk. And, and we really need to create the framework and the guidelines to protect ourselves from ourselves. And Congressman, I want to come back to that topic of election security, but I also wanted to ask you, we just were talking about the lessons to be learned from social media. Um, Congressman Beyer, you've been working on legislation that would expand cloud computing resources. Are we at a point right now in the AI revolution where we risk just seeing the big tech companies get even bigger? Well, that, that is a danger. In fact, one of the legislation that Mark and I have done together is the Create AI Act. It's been very bipartisan. It's the whole notion of most, even most companies, and certainly universities, can't afford to set up the $100 million um, resource platform. So what we want to do is create our own huge database. Like OpenAI, for example, scrubbed the internet of six trillion different words. So a significant percentage of which were not correct words or connect ideas. Um, but if we can do the Create, create AI Act, we can then give universities, companies, small companies, you know, the democratization of AI by giving them a, a database resource to use for all these searches. Listen, without question, I, again, going back to the social media space, what's the last major piece of legislation we worked on uh, but, but to protect uh, children? Uh, if you think about it, uh, the, uh, the, the Create AI Act uh, that Don mentioned provides uh, that sort of broad uh, uh, foundation, if you will, uh, to protect ourselves uh, in, that, in that sense. And my concern um, ultimately is, is that we will be too, well too late and that lives will be horribly impacted because we didn't establish those guidelines. And on that point of the idea of big tech getting bigger, uh, we know that the FTC has been studying the relationships between some of the AI companies like Anthropic and OpenAI and the bigger tech players. Uh, Congressman Molinaro, do you support the FTC or DOJ opening an investigation into Microsoft and OpenAI? Well, here's here's what I think, um, and it's part of what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, so, the, you know, you have, you have the president's executive order, which sort of stand, stands up this sort of broad oversight to a degree, but we've got to legislate, and I do worry at times that the FTC kind of functions without legislative uh, guide, guide rails. That said, at the moment, that's the tool, and the tool needs to be used effectively. So I don't want to start uh, getting ahead of, the, uh, uh, of an investigation, so to speak. But I do think that the threat of and the consideration of uh, using uh, the FTC to at least uh, you know, hold hold somebody to account is necessary, but but where we're where we're absent is broad congressional uh, action. That that there needs to be the legislative function that then those agencies can work uh, within. And again, using digital assets as a as a, a parallel, uh, that's where that's the risk we have there. We don't have federal standards. EU does, uh, Great Britain does. We don't. Uh, and once we do, not by executive order, but by legislative action, then those regulatory, regulatory agencies have the function and the capacity to appropriately provide the oversight and, by the way, uh, accountability. And it can, that's, that's a really interesting piece, though, too, because one of the big questions that keeps coming up again is do we regulate the underlying math and the computer science or, or do we regulate the use? And I think we both come down heavily on, on the end use rather than trying to tell people you can't think. Um, but then the question is, if you're regulating end use, who's doing the regulation? And so far, I think the debate has tended to be 
with the FTC and DOJ and others, we have the resources right now, the FCC, to do the regulation at the end use case, rather than setting up a big new federal bureaucracy to do it, which we're not excited about. No, and I think using the existing uh, tools is, is necessary. But again, using uh, uh, the, the crypto and digital space as the parallel, that's the issue. I, I serve on the Ag subcommittee uh, uh, on digital assets. Yes, the Agriculture Committee has its subcommittee on digital assets. Why? Because we treat it in part as a, as a commodity. Well, is it a commodity or isn't it? And so we have the same sort of issue here, and that's why legislative action, I think, is necessary. And Congressman, you just mentioned the EU. They've obviously reached a deal on the EU AI Act. The UK has established their AI Safety Summit. The head of that summit, the, the head of their AI Safety Institute, is actually in town this week. Um, I'm just curious: Does the US risk falling behind these other countries and letting them take the lead when it comes to setting international AI standards? I, I think we're way ahead of Britain. Um, you know, they're, they're Bletchley Declaration, just a declaration. The president's uh, executive order goes far beyond that. And, and NIST has established, we think, the best international standard for what AI should be. Uh, and the EU, I think we're trying to learn from that, uh, and especially learn from their mistakes. Because at least business has pushed back really hard on it being overly prescriptive, lots of licensing, lots of looking at the underlying computer science. And we're trying to stay away from that. Yeah, I, I think that I mean, that is important. Um, I, I would say that, uh, I mean, first, let's be honest, uh, we are all behind. I mean, it doesn't matter which nation or organization of nations, we are behind. Um, but that's not awful. Uh, I do think the standards uh, that NIST has set up and the president's executive order is, is broad and, and, and necessary. Um, but I'll, I'll also take this as an opportunity to also state the obvious. It's kind of okay sometimes for someone else to take the first couple of steps. We can learn uh, from both their, uh, their success and their missteps as well. But I do think that, uh, and as I'm new to this space, Don and others have been really engaged. I, I think we have uh, attempted, uh, I think, earnestly to keep pace. We just haven't yet established, in my view, uh, broad enough, uh, uh, I'll, I'll say, guide rails for, um, for both protection, Americans' protection, and, and Congress's base oversight. And I want to make if, if I said that correctly. Yeah, you said it beautifully. One of, one of the dangers, though, is NIST, whom we, we lift up, apparently has two and a half whole staffers on this. Uh, so we think they might They're need a little more. Though. They are. <laughs> they, they might need a little more resources, especially with the challenge we've given them. The UK has put over $100 million into its safety initiative. How much money does NIST need? Uh, not, not for me to say, but that. And whenever he says, I say a few bucks less. <laughs> <You're right. Yeah. laughs> yeah. Especially in a tech, more than two and a half people. Let's just say that. Yeah, yeah, so. How we can negotiate to five, maybe six. <laughs> and I want to make sure that we get to the topic of election security because we've already seen issues with AI-generated robocalls. Um, impersonating candidates in the race. We've seen political candidates using chatbots already. Is it already too late for Congress to take action to protect the 2024 elections from AI? I hope not. You know, both Richie Torres and Yvette Clark have had legislation for a couple of sessions that would either prohibit the use of AI in election ads and robocalls and the like, or at least require disclosure. And I'm hoping our bipartisan group can come together because, you know, it's both sides have been affected by it, whether it's President Biden's, you know, the, the fake the calls that he was making or Donald Trump with the nice picture with Anthony Fauci that uh, 
Governor DeSantis put out. So. Well, last week it was Trump and Biden playing cards. I don't know if you saw that <laughs> no, one. I didn't but, see that. Uh, that's, uh, 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 there's, is it too late for 24? Likely not. I think that there are, um, you know, again, regulatory restrictions. The other, of course, is we have 50 states. Many of them have at least taken some action uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to restrict. We had a, an incident in New York uh, with a, a, a political leader. I think it was a deep fake uh, voicemail message. It said shockwaves. It just reminds the incident, right? So states being the, uh, the laboratories of democracy, uh, they can act a little bit more quickly, perhaps not as, uh, uh, as uh, effectively, uh, certainly not broadly, but uh, they can act a little bit more quickly. And, and some are, both through their boards or organizations of elections or through state, legisla state legislation. But this is a space that we've, we certainly have to uh, come to some, some formal agreement on. Because again, uh, it, it, is, it is about protecting democracy. Uh, and <laughs> let's, be, let's be candid. I mean, some of these, uh, these fakes are better than, than, than like the real, real politicians. And to the notion of the states as laboratories, the more states that do this, the more examples we have of what can work, what might work. Yeah. And on this point, though, we've seen when we're talking about social media, this issue of disinformation or falsehoods online really divide the parties. I mean, do you think that this will be different, Congressman Molinaro, with AI, that deep fakes is an area where the parties might be able to work together? Well, I, I hope so. Uh, I hope so. I mean, at the end of the day, we all want to preserve, um, you know, our in quotes in our, our identity. But again, y you all have watched uh, what uh, what has happened on the national stage. The minute we think we have agreement, we don't. And I certainly don't uh, don't want to predict uh, uh, the future of, uh, of of a Congress that often is prepared to expect the unexpected or unexpect the expected. Um, and, uh, and, and I just would say, though, I, th I think that the work that we're doing in a bipartisan way does establish the base for what is common ground on this, on this issue as it relates specifically uh, to our elections. And typically, we've been worried about voter fraud, the wrong people voting, ineligible people voting. Now it goes far beyond that to, are we delivering completely uh, authentic but dishonest and incorrect messages? Um, you know, the, the pictures of President Trump and Biden playing cards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And Congressman Molinaro, I mean, right now, Trump is the front runner in the Republican field. If he becomes president again, do you expect him to uphold Biden's executive actions on AI? Well, I, um, I have desperately attempted to stay out of presidential politics for as long as you'll allow me <laughs> or as long as I will allow myself. Uh, I, ex I would expect so, but more importantly, uh, I think because there is bipartisan, bicameral support for aggressively and earnestly moving into the space, um, I, I will tell you, um, whether it's presidential action or not, I think con congressional action is the most appropriate, period. Uh, that is constitutionally supported, and therefore I think the agenda will continue to move forward with smart people, well, us and oh, smart so people right. <laughs> to address <laughs> to address the matter. But again, I, I think that I mean this conversation is just uh, emblematic of what is a bipartisan, bicameral discussion underway every day uh, on this topic. And Congressman, before we go, I do want to ask one news of the day question. Me? Yes. Hey, for you. <laughs> ask him about the president. <laughs> All I can tell you is Mike Johnson is still speaker. <laughs> Well, the Senate released its long-awaited bill on border security. This is the most conservative bill that we've seen in years. Um, it has the support of the Border Patrol Union. 
Why doesn't it have your support? Well, this is uh, what, what I'll offer. Um, the president, in my view, president undid actions. He took executive action that, uh, that made worse a crisis, period. I believe earnestly that the president ought to take the similar executive action to show in good faith that we have the capacity, he has the capacity and desire to restrict, uh, act, uh, restrict illegal crossings. The bill includes components that I could support, support of law enforcement, uh, 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 more streamlining of the asylum and vetting process. I don't believe it earnestly confronts uh, the, the root cause of the problem. And unless I can, I, I think the president needs to, uh, needs to show some leadership in that regard. I just feel like we are at a position now where some want to codify a bit of the crisis instead of addressing the root cause of the crisis. I'm hopeful we can get there. Um, I don't happen to think that the Senate should simply take H.R. 2, which is, I would say, the con most conservative border, uh, sec uh, border security bill uh, ever adopted by Congress. We could say that the Senate bill is the most conservative ever proposed by Congress. The Senate's got to adopt theirs. We adopt ours. We're supposed to negotiate. That's how it works. I wasn't elected to accept what the Senate offers. The Senate wasn't elected to accept what we offer. We have, we have a divided government and a divided country. There needs to be negotiation uh, to some common ground. Congressman Byer, we're almost out of time, but I want to give you a chance to respond if to If you want, I could keep talking so he has no time left to, <laughs> to counter my position. <laughs> I think it's sad. We have not done meaningful immigration reform since at least 2005. We talk about it every year. We now have something that the right hates on the, on the end and the left hates on the end, which means it's probably just where it should be. And I would love to be able to vote for it. Well, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Congressman, thank you both for joining us today. And please stick around for our next segment. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, thank you all for being with us today. I'm Linda Moore. I'm the CEO of TechNet. And if you're not familiar with TechNet, we were founded in 1997 in Silicon Valley to work with policymakers to make sure that we seize the opportunities and address the challenges of making sure that America is the most innovative country on Earth. Um, Representative Eshu, who's here with me today, remembers the beginning of TechNet, I'm sure. Um, we're, we're advocating a, a targeted policy agenda at the federal and the 50 state level. And we're excited to talk to you about AI today, just the latest in a long series of technologies that America has led. In the time that Representative Eshu has been in Congress for over 30 years, she has seen the evolution of technology um, and I want to ask her a little bit about that today so she can share with you her perspective. Uh, she represents the 16th District of California, which represents Silicon Valley, also has Stanford University. And we're so happy to have you here with us today. I know you're extremely busy, so thank you. Thank you, Linda. It's great to be with you. Great to be with everyone. And thank you to The Washington Post for sponsoring this forum. Wonderful. So I want to ask you, um, in your 30 years that you've been in Congress now, You've seen the evolution of the internet, um, smartphones, and now we have AI. Um, so in that time, you know, how do you view the evolution of technology in America and its impact on the US and the world? Well, uh, I think I've had a front row seat to all of this. And uh, it, is, uh, uh, it, it really is a, a, a revolution. Uh, I, I think going back to the Industrial Revolution, uh, when I first was elected to Congress, 1992, the year of the woman, I think they meant it just to be that year, but uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, when you think of how we uh, uh, accessed uh, music, it was CDs, it was records, um, if there was, 
Well, there was the beginning of uh, phones, but they were practically the size of uh, backpacks. Mm -hmm. uh, so many of the companies that we are totally familiar with now, uh, some of them hadn't even been born, uh, and some had, but they were in their infancy. So there has been an extraordinary, extraordinary change uh, over the years. Uh, now music, uh, information is at our fingertips. It's all in a computer that uh, fits in our pockets. So uh, it's been a, a real revolution and uh, I'm very proud that so much of the innovation uh, has come from my congressional district and it continues to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that we were talking about a few moments ago was the fact that, uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there who feel that AI just burst upon the scene with chat GPT. Um, but we know that that's not the case. It's no, been around for a very long time. We've been using it in our daily lives, mm -hmm. and it's powered everything from GPS to um, other technologies. So can you share, you know, your view on the evolution of AI in particular? Well, very recently I was chatting with a dear friend of mine and very early in her career, uh, she worked at Stanford Research Institute at SRI. Uh, and uh, that was uh, in, the, in the 70s. And uh, she was telling me how she uh, uh, audited uh, reports relative to AI. She edited, did a great deal of editing. I didn't know that she had done that, but it was so interesting to me, uh, the dates of uh, when that occurred. So uh, it, uh, artificial, artificial intelligence has been around for a long time, uh, but what's new about it are the large language models and uh, the generative uh, AI. And of course, last, what, November, December, uh, when ChatGBT came out with uh, what they came out with, uh, it, was, um, it was extraordinary. And, and for most people in the country, I think, it was their first hearing about AI. Mm -hmm. But it's not brand new. Yes. Uh, it is, uh, it's something that uh, I think holds a great deal of promise, uh, Linda, uh, but also the peril. And uh, depending on... Uh, I think um, what Congress does with it, uh, that we can uh, avoid the peril and enlarge the promise. Mm -hmm. Exactly. A goal with, that we share with you, for sure. Um, I want to ask you about your bill, the CREATE AI Act. I know there's a hearing in the House Science Committee today about that. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the purpose of that bill? Mm -hmm. Well, when I leave here, I'm going to be going directly uh, to that hearing at Science, Space, and Technology. Uh, the CREATE Act um, and the, uh, the forerunner to the CREATE Act, which was in a previous Congress legislation that I carried, uh, was really... Um, originally shaped at Stanford University, which is in the heart of my congressional district. Uh, Stanford uh, has its human-centered uh, AI institute, and um, we work together uh, to shape the following. First, uh, the original legislation from a previous Congress uh, was uh, to create a task force of, of experts uh, that would look across AI and make recommendations, this is very broad, make recommendations uh, uh, to the Congress on it. Uh, I passed that legislation, a previous Congress, and now the CREATE Act. 
these experts really made the recommendation uh, that there be a national AI uh, research resource. And uh, I think simply put, uh, it is, uh, it's to democratize AI. Uh, what is held today uh, in terms of resources are really the very large technology companies uh, because it takes enormous data, it takes enormous resources uh, to, uh, uh, to, uh, you know, to draw from. Uh, we have many sectors in the country. We have the public sector, we have the private sector, we have the medical sector, we have nonprofit, we have academic. So this legislation is to, uh, it's public and private, uh, but those resources would be available to all sectors. Uh, very recently, I had a call from uh, uh, a pediatric uh, radiologist at Stanford, uh, together with some of his colleagues from other uh, medical centers in the country. And uh, their concern was that there were pediatric radiological uh, devices with AI but there wasn't any good housekeeping seal of approval, essentially, on these, um, uh, on these devices. And you're not going to practice on children. So, I mean, that's just one element from the medical community. Uh, so I, I think that this uh, legislation, which is bicameral, it's bipartisan, uh, the chairman of the uh, committee has really been uh, very gracious. Uh, uh, today there's a hearing. Uh, I look forward to a markup. Uh, and I think that um, this is legislation that is going to move. We also have uh, uh, a series of other bills. Uh, consumers in the country need to be protected. Our national security needs to be addressed. I mean, there's, it's wide ranging. Uh, but I do think that the Congress uh, has the capacity, uh, has the ability um, to do this, and uh, uh, not only to pass this legislation, but I think uh, addressing uh, 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 other areas as, as well. Uh, the previous panel I was listening to in the, uh, in the green room, uh, uh, there are threats that are out there. They're already being used. Uh, in, uh, in the political uh, uh, field uh, and the campaigns that are uh, already underway. Uh, information has to be factual and people have to have confidence uh, across the board. So um, I think that um, uh, we're going to make some headway in this Congress, I believe, on some of the, the basics, elemental. You know, going back to 1996, um, Congress uh, uh, passed the uh, telecommunications law. It was huge. And that was something that the previous Congresses had, uh, many Congresses had um, struggled with, but finally got it over the finish line. There was Section 230. Um, everyone here knows what Section 230 is, right? Um, we made a mistake. I believe we made a mistake. Uh, I understand why Congress did what it did then, um, because uh, the, uh, uh, the internet was in its infancy 
then. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't want to um, smother innovation. And so Section 230, uh, that's what was captured, uh, captured in Section 230. Uh, no liability whatsoever. Well, today, I think we realize that, um, I think that we realize mm -hmm. that was a mistake. So uh, the AI caucus in the House, which I'm a co-chair of, it is bipartisan. Uh, Michael McCall is, uh, is my partner, and we've grown the caucus. There's great interest on the part uh, of members uh, to educate members. You know, no member of Congress is going to say, I don't know anything about that. But, and I think that for so many of them, it's like getting socks on an octopus, you know. I mean, there's so much, you know, so much that's incoming. Uh, so um, uh, we've worked hard to, um, to educate members uh, and their staffs. Staffs are very important in this as well. Uh, and I think that um, uh, by bringing in leaders uh, in the industry, um, uh, experts, uh, develop a, um, a comfort level, uh, but very importantly, you have to understand something before you legislate. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, uh, I think the legislation can be very faulty. So yeah. I think the combination of the understanding and the education uh, and what we're bringing forward, like the CREATE Act, and I want to thank TechNet uh, for uh, endorsing it, mm -hmm. uh, those endorsements are really very important to members. They look at that, and that helps to develop a comfort level as well uh, that will um, uh, will make an important contribution. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, we're out of time, so I just want to Already? thank you so much, oh yes, goodness. for being with us. Well, I am in the talking business, so I <laughs> ate up the time. Well, thank you for uh, sharing you. all of your it, insights, and thank you for your public service. We thank so you, appreciate Linda. it. Thank you. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Uh, I'm pleased to be here with Ann Neuberger, who is the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology at the White House, a veteran of the National Security Agency, one of the really smart people in our government who was helping us think about these difficult issues. And you set up uh, my first question in your comments on, on the video. Let's talk about the, the twin themes of the promise and peril of AI, and if you could give us examples of the specifics of each as you think about them that would help our audience understand promise and peril. Absolutely. Good morning, David. It's great to be here with you. It's great to be here with, with everyone. Uh, three examples in that area as we think about. To your point, artificial intelligence does bring really promising areas, and we, there are also real risks we're concerned about. So let's talk about three. Um, in the area of disease, ALS is a particularly debilitating disease where a person retains their mind but slowly loses their ability to talk, their physical capabilities. And there are a number of charities, there are a number of medical organizations that have started voice banking, essentially saving people's, doing recordings of people's voices so that, unfortunately, as the disease progresses, when they can communicate via nodding their head or blinking their eyes, that can be matched to letters and they can actually talk. My husband and I are involved with a charity that's done this for many, that's served ALS patients for many years, and it's a gift to them and their families that they can still communicate. Clearly, 
models that clone voices, whether that is cloning the voice of a grandchild for an elderly person picking up the phone, the first thing they hear, a, a grandson at harm, they don't even validate, right? They want to help and jump in. Whether that is cloning uh, voices in the context of political campaigns and the risks there, one can see the promise in giving people the ability to communicate when they no longer can, we can clearly see the peril. The technology has evolved. We hosted a voice a countering, building AI defenses to counter AI-driven voice cloning event at the White House last week. And one of the things we heard was that the technology has evolved to where you needed in the past four hours of voice recordings, which really made it more people who are well-known, celebrities, politicians who had that amount of voice public or an intentional versus now needing just a few minutes. So that's one area of promise and peril. A second, in the area of cybersecurity and cyber attacks. So the same models that can potentially scan code to find vulnerabilities, to find weaknesses in the code that an attacker uses to get into a system are the same models that somebody building code can use to test their code, to say, where are there holes that the coder wants to fix before that code is deployed to a train, to a rail signaling system, the software that runs our economy? It's literally the same model, and the question is, what purpose is it put to? And then finally, in the area of education. You know, we've heard the concerns educators have, colleges, schools, that people will generate, students will generate some of their essays and submissions via ChatGPT and not have the opportunity to learn. On the other hand, think about the role of a teacher sitting in front of 25 students, each with different skills, each with different learning styles, and the way that AI can customize learning to help each child learn according to what works best for them is tremendously promising, particularly in schools that are really working to help students with different kinds of learning disabilities. So three areas where one can see the promise and the peril. And I think for us, both in government and in the private sector, certainly in the academic community and researchers, the challenge we have now is how do we move quickly on the AI-driven promise for our economy, for our society, while building in the risk controls so that we feel safe doing so? And you spent much of your career in the intelligence community, and I want to ask you to focus on that area briefly. CIA Director Bill Burns wrote a week or so ago in Foreign Affairs about the impact of AI uh, on intelligence, and he said the same t technology that sometimes works against the CIA, whether it's mining big data to expose patterns in the agency's activities, uh, or massive camera networks that can track uh, CIA operatives every move can also be made to work for it and against others. And he also talked about the way in which new AI tools are giving analysts extraordinary power to understand data, to predict events uh, using uh, AI, AI tools. So just talk a little bit. You're one of the people who's knowledgeable and experienced about the ways in which AI is, is a danger in the Intel business and also maybe is a real opportunity. Bill's article was really thoughtful in the, some of the examples that he wrote about. And I'll talk about two that you referenced there that are particularly interesting. You know, one of the hardest missions in the intelligence community, I served there for almost 15 years, and the one that really drives people each and every day are the time-sensitive 
intelligence, when you see or the ability to really process intelligence fast enough to prevent an attack that's being planned, to prevent something dangerous. And those are the toughest missions because the clock is ticking. And you need to get in the intelligence, have analysts take a look at it, and then get it to those who can act as quickly as possible. So when we think about our intelligence community, we have all different kinds of capabilities. Satellites, collecting images of places around the world that seek to find patterns, something that's unusual. You have collection of voice conversations or computer uh, traffic, again, to see people who may be planning something via email, and certainly human assets and the conversations they have as well. And bringing that together in a quick and rapid way is something that's been an ongoing journey for a long time. So when we think about, for example, satellite collection, the same models that can look at a set of images coming off ships in the ocean to see, is this ships passing illicit cargo, for example? Are they working to pass weapons to terror groups, weapons to sanctioned groups, in a way that potentially a US or an allied ship may seek, to, may seek to intercept, to prevent those weapons going into the hands of individuals who may be planning an attack. The models, the AI models that can identify in a vast ocean a particular ship to know that that's affiliated with potentially known terror groups or to identify something being passed that looks like it's dangerous weapons, rapidly enough to flag what we call indications and warnings, there's tremendous promise in the AI space there. On the flip side, in authoritarian countries, those same models could be used to monitor people, to monitor groups forming to protest, or to monitor individuals who are seeking to, to flee a country. So what we need to build in is and say, how do we ensure we're using those models to protect? And then certainly in the United States where we have civil liberties and privacy protections, but how do we work on global governance models to the extent possible to ensure that where companies collect that data, they're thinking through the potential risks of authoritarian countries using it and building in protections accordingly. So those are kind of two models to look at there. That's a very helpful overview of a, of a complicated subject. I want to ask you about something that's important, um, sensitive, uh, your boss, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, said uh, last week in a speech uh, at, a, at a conference hosted by the Council on Foreign Relations that he looks forward to the dialogue between the United States and China on AI that President Biden had discussed with President Xi at their summit meeting uh, in, in uh, uh, California a, a few months ago and said that he expects it will begin in March. I, I know there's not a lot you can say about that agenda, but tell us just a little bit about how the United States approaches this conversation with the country we've called our pacing competitor and the only country really that's in the same league with us in AI. President Biden, as you noted, met President Xi um, at APEC um, in San Francisco. And they discussed our desire to collaborate on areas where we can, even as we compete on the global stage in areas where we must. And one of those areas was AI, because both countries recognize the power of the technology and the way, as two global technology leaders, we have a responsibility to determine how we can cooperate to build in those risks, those controls to deal with some of those risks. 
So we're working on planning that as a key area of potential cooperation between the two countries. So we should see this as discussion of guardrails as in other areas of national security with China, yeah? Exactly. You may have seen in the readout from President Biden's discussion a desire to cooperate on countering drugs, particularly fentanyl and some of the components that uh, we believe are manufactured in China and China's cooperation in tackling that given the fentanyl epidemic in this country and the need for their partnership to really tackle those components as they are put together. So that's another area where we've identified potential area for partnership because we think China can be a collaborative partner. So we're just entering, uh, as we enter the uh, era of AI, inevitably the era of AI regulation. I heard one of the top uh, uh, software designers of OpenAI say a week ago that it looks like Europe, Europe not being a leader in AI may be a leader in AI regulation. And the Europeans are moving quickly to establish categories for regulation and possible registration requirements and a, a fairly extensive regulatory apparatus. What do you think about that effort? And in general, what are your concerns when you think about regulating this fast-moving, world-changing technology? What are the pluses and minuses as you look at the European regime, for example? First, as we've talked about, David, there are real risks from AI. And as the president has said, we do need regulation to ensure the controls are in place so we can use the technology responsibly. We know Americans are concerned about how AI could be used, for example, in determining who gets a loan, in determining who gets a job, and how much transparency there is on what data those models are trained on and how they make decisions to ensure that people have visibility into the models that may be shaping these important decisions affecting our lives. For right now, um, the EU's AI Act is the most comprehensive regulation. A couple of days ago, countries signed off on it. It still has to go to the European Parliament, but we expect they will pass it. And they have certain categories of regulatory approaches for large language models, for models with certain compute capacity, some of which there are existing models that already meet that threshold for certain uses as well, that they consider high-risk uses. Notably, ChatGPT-like capabilities are not included as a high-risk use. It's more medical environments, um, critical infrastructure environments, like using models to adjust the amount of chlorine in water systems. Notably, one area that there are some exceptions, for example, in the area of research and development. And indeed, one of the leading open source models is a French model, Mistral, which talks about, which believes that it may be exempted from the regulation due to either being an R&D category or to the compute power that it represents. So I think from an EU perspective, EU has, the EU has long had a lead on regulation first versus I think the US model, which is we take pride in being global innovators. We also recognize the need to use technology responsibly. And quite frankly, we have some real lessons learned as you saw in the hearings on social media on the Hill earlier this week, where we look at that perhaps as an area, I think notably as an area where we need greater regulations to protect children online, to protect some of the harms that we see social media bringing to our society. Similarly, in the area of cybersecurity, the Biden administration has really been the first to start putting in place regulation 
for the cybersecurity of key critical services like water and pipelines. We saw the impact post-colonial. So the, Euro the European Union and the US have notably different approaches to technology regulation that we see playing out now in the AI space. So in terms of the American approach, which has often placed more stress on the voluntary uh, agreement and, and compliance, you had a, an important meeting at the White House with uh, some of the top AI companies, Amazon, Google, uh, Meta, Microsoft, OpenAI, et cetera. And uh, that en ended up with a pledge um, to take certain steps to mitigate some of the most serious harms. For example, to deal with the problem of deep fakes. Um, uh, I gather that there's gonna be an effort to watermark content mm -hmm. so that you can see a little flag that says this was created by a computer. Um, so d talk, if you would, about uh, that voluntary pledge signing, what you think this audience and the people watching us mm -hmm. uh, on, on television should, should know about, about the voluntary effort, and, and what areas you think may need additional non-voluntary um, uh, focus, uh, perhaps in the form of legislation. So as you noted, David, the president hosted leading technology companies this summer, and 15 companies have signed voluntary commitments around a set of practices related to managing the risk, testing models, red teaming, essentially testing models by trying to get it to do things that it's expected that it can't do, uh, more transparency on the data that models are being trained on, because clearly, you know, an old computer programming term, garbage in, garbage out. If you train a system on biased data, it's no surprise when the results it gives on a loan selection or a job selection will reflect the data it was trained on. Um, so the set of voluntary commitments that were announced after the president hosted this meeting was the first of three steps we see in the overall U.S. governance approach. The second was the landmark um, AI executive order, which the president released, which outlined both ways to use AI as well as some really robust ways to look at the risks. For example, one of the areas I'm particularly focused on is the risk of using AI in our critical systems from water to power. How we, for example, determine where we generate power, where we distribute power, how we determine, for example, rail signaling systems. What is the most efficient route? And ensuring that those models are trained, are tested fully, there's transparency, and that there's humans in the loop on key decisions. So for that one, for example, in the president's executive order, agencies um, delivered their first level risk assessments, which we're now reviewing to determine what additional regulation may be needed. So the first step were the voluntary commitments, the second, the president's executive order, which goes to the line of what we can do under current law. The third is potential regulation, which the Hill is working on under Leader Schumer. I'm really bipartisan efforts, and there have been some initial bills, but bipartisan efforts to determine what are new laws we need for this very new space. Let me talk for a moment about watermarking, because you asked specifically, yes, please. and it's particularly significant on one of the risks I think many of us are worried about, which is deep fakes. Deep fake images, deep fake videos. Six weeks ago, a number of people saw on Twitter a picture of the Pentagon burning. It looked realistic, was it true? And the Arundel Fire Department quickly came online and said, this isn't true, here's 
you know, here's a picture of the Pentagon right now. But that rapid action was critical because it's hard for an undiscerning eye to make a distinction. Or the, or the robocalls that were pretending to be President Biden the other day. Another example. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so watermarking, both visible and invisible, is a way for tools that generate AI images or videos to put a mark that then a platform that's distributing it, think Meta, think a social media platform, a website, to put a message saying this is AI-generated content. It's not a vote on whether it's true or not. It's a vote that alerts us as humans to say this is AI-generated. Make what you will of that. Now, some have concerns, David, that the platforms that would market are the responsible ones. And there will always be platforms, as we have today, that, will, that are not interested in being responsible. And for that, researchers, companies, really are looking at and need to do more to build the technology to identify what are deep fakes. So in addition to what is watermarked, there would also be active efforts to determine what is a deep fake. And that technology is evolving um, to market that it's likely that this is also AI generated. Again, with the goal of cueing the human. So in, the, in this realm of irresponsible actors using a technology that's increasingly available, we have a, a question from an audience member, Daniel Burleson from Oregon, who asks, what would keep North Korea from using their own version modeled after the available descriptions of how the AI knowledge base is created. And let's just note that a lot of the proposals are for open source uh, AI models that would allow North Korea to, to just grab this technology and move. How do we prevent terrible consequences from irresponsible actors who have just immediate access to tools that can do great harm? Daniel's asking a really thoughtful question, because ironically enough, the North Koreans are some of the most creative and innovative in leveraging emerging tech. For example, they've used hacking cryptocurrency infrastructure to glean billions of dollars to fund their missile program. So they wouldn't be what one would expect in terms of on the cutting edge of using breakthrough technologies, but in practice, they have been. Um, and open source models are a particularly interesting question, because you know, I, I was at CES last month, and you saw any number of cool AI-enabled products from Caterpillar tractors determining where to irrigate based on whether you know, there had been rain in the last or if crops looked a particular way. And those were using largely open source models or models that had been particularly trained for a particular purpose. So I think what we need to look through is what, is the, what are the red teaming standards? What is the transparency on data training standards? And the Department of Commerce's new AI testing center, new AI safety center, plans to put a real focus on what are those standards. And then to your earlier question, as the Hill works on regulation, that could be some areas where we say models need to meet those red teaming, those transparency standards in order to be released, American companies releasing those models or using those kinds of models. So that could be a way to bring that full circle. We've got just a few seconds left. I'm going to ask you a quick question, but it's the one that I was most curious about. The world's kind of dividing up between AI optimists and AI pessimists. And I'm very curious which side of that you're on. 
I suspect, as with many things, our core personalities play out in the glass half full, half empty. So I'll caveat to say I tend to be generally a glass half full person. I truly, when we think about that first example, an individual has lost their ability to speak and communicate, and the ability of AI to give them that, or when we think about the intelligence community being much more effective on rapid indications and warning by using image identification models, we must do that to keep the world safer at a time of such challenges. But we have an equal obligation to put the same creative efforts to ensuring we're deploying that in a safe, responsible way. And that's the, both the US, it's our partners around the world, and a real goal for private sector responsibility to, in, in doing that work with us. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Ann Neuberger, one of the smart people who's helping keep our country uh, down the right path on AI. Thanks so much, Ann. Well, good morning and welcome back. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Washington Editor here at The Post. Our next guest is Neil Kosla, CEO and co-founder of Curi. Neil, welcome to The Post. Thank you. I want to start with a little bit of background. I know before you were CEO of Curie, you were an AI researcher at Stanford and Google, and you didn't have any background in healthcare. What was the catalyst to starting this company? Well, a lot of it was personal for me. So I, for most of my life, I've had some form of family member with some sort of illness. So it started with my grandfather, who was a medical tourist and used to actually share a bedroom with me when I was 16. Um, he would come over and get treatment at Stanford uh, from India. And that was kind of my first experience, probably continued in some form with different family members throughout my life, and most notably my mom, who had two open heart surgeries in three days. We spent a month living in Mayo Clinic. And that was one of those moments that was pretty pivotal for me. You know, my mom came back after a month in the cardiac ICU, and um, we, about two weeks post-discharge, she wasn't feeling well on a Friday night. So at 9 p.m. on a Friday night, we're about to take her back to the hospital. For any you know, clinical folks in the crowd, you know that a, a patient like that is, is definitely going to go back in for at least a day, if not more. And we started texting her Mayo Clinic surgeon. And for me, it was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And he, he basically said, you know, he, he had her take a, an EKG, uh, which is an electrocardiogram on her portable device. It's a company called AliveCore that makes a credit card sized device that has an FDA approved portable EKG and sent it to her. And he gave her a diagnosis and said, increase your dosage of your medication, you'll be fine. And I remember sitting there going, holy, this is incredible. Um, you know, why doesn't everyone have a Mayo Clinic surgeon that they can text all the time? And, and you're laughing, but seriously, like when, we're, when we think about what the goal should be, the goal should be for everybody to have that kind of expertise and personalization. And the fact that my family can afford it is actually a pretty messed up existence that, that we get that and it changed the course of her life. I mean, she's literally alive because of that experience. Mayo told her there was less than five surgeons in the world who could have done uh, the surgery that she had. And there's millions of people in America and in the world who don't get that level of care. And we started the company with that idea in mind. Like We want to put the very best physician in the world for ver your particular condition or disease in your pocket. And the only way you're going to do that is if you can 
scale and leverage the expertise that we have. And so that's what we've been working on. So I want to understand how your platform works. I know sure. that you work with physicians and then they're using AI. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So um, we run what's called a virtual primary care clinic. So patients come online. They can they find us through a variety of channels, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, they download our app, and they're able to text directly with a clinician and a clinical team. So um, the way the experience typically works is if a patient's having an issue, they'll actually first be interviewed, so to speak, by the AI. And so, you know, you can think of this as kind of the 20 questions your doctor asks you when you're having an issue. And um, after you go through that interview, a note will be presented for the clinician. It will be presented as sort of a shared piece of understanding between you and the clinician. Here's what's going on with me. Here's all the details. And on the back end, we work with clinicians who can pick this up, understand the summary. They're also presented with kind of an intelligent set of notes of any other information we have about your medical history. And then they'll finish the visit virtually. So they'll text with you if need be. They can get on the phone or on a video call. Um, and then they'll make a decision about what to do. And you know, on our end, we've also handled a number of the other kind of challenges for the clinician, including parts of um, writing up the, uh, the notes from the visit and, um, and putting to decision support on putting together a care plan. And then we'll also even do, at the physician's direction, follow-up. And then we'll continue to engage with the patient. You know, in, in our world today, if you're a patient with a chronic disease, you are you go see a clinician, they say, hey, we need to lower your cholesterol, and you know, that's the end of the visit, or we need to we need to lower your blood pressure and good luck. And for us, we see AI as an extension for the clinician in between visits as well, where you know, we can work with the patient, we can answer simple behavioral questions that they might have, or we can report side effects and continue to understand and, and triage those things back to the clinician for intervention. So we look at what is the ideal world and how do we scale that kind of ex that expertise and that reach so the physician can have more touch points with the patient. Well, and as we hear all the time, there's an alarming shortage of primary care providers. So how are you hoping to address that issue? Well, uh, look, I, I think... If you want to address the shortage, and I, I think the number that I've been quoted is that one in five clinicians want to retire in the next five years, um, you, you have to create leverage. So you have to look at the things they do with their time and say, which of these things can be done in an assistive way with technology? And uh, that's what we've been looking at. So we quite literally measure where a clinician spends time to deliver care. And then we say, can we be, build a piece of technology to be either fully assistive or, or fully automated in this thing? And so that's everything from the patient interview to the notes process to follow up after the visit to checking in on the patient as they start a new medication course, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so AI is exciting. It also brings a lot of uncertainty and fears and questions, particularly around people's health and the practice of medicine. Um, you know, what are the common objections that you hear and, and how would you address those? Well, I think the, the obvious ones that everyone is really concerned about first is what happens if the AI makes a mistake. Um, and, and I think that there's a pretty simple explanation for how you handle this, which is at this point in time, we, we don't have AI make decisions in any kind of clinical setting, right? So every decision that's made is made by a clinician and the AI is assistive. 
But, but I think beyond that, one of the reasons we don't do that is, you know, there are, there are pieces of AI that are making decision in, in the healthcare industry broadly. Um, even that company I mentioned with the portable EKG, AliveCore, has FDA approval for their AI to diagnose a variety of conditions, including some conditions that cannot be diagnosed by a human being from reading an EKG. Um, and so it's, you know, there are pathways that exist today for AI to do these things. You know, in our case, we haven't gone through those pathways yet, and so these things remain truly assistive. Do you envision a time, though, where, you know, AI has progressed to the point where it can make these larger decisions when we're looking ahead 5, 10, 15 years? Well, so again, you know, it already is making diagnostic decisions. I think the clear line today has been kind of in the practice of medicine. Um, and, and, you know, I think we really don't know the technological or the cultural acceptability of these things. And I think that has to be discovered. You know, we just don't know. It's been five years since you co-founded Curie, uh, and that was before I think uh, we knew about Jet. Most of us knew much about AI and certainly about Chat GBT. Uh, how have you seen the industry change, particularly in the healthcare space? Yeah, I, I mean, look, when we started, everyone thought we were crazy. You know, it sounded like a bunch of baloney, but. I'd say the industry as a whole is, is rapidly trying to understand how they should be using these tools. Um, you know, it's a healthcare industry, so there's a tremendous amount of risk aversion, um, and that's normal. And I, and I think, for the most part, it's a feature, not a bug, as we would say in Silicon Valley. Um, but um, it's, uh, it, it's, certainly, it's certainly shifting. But, um, you know, the other, the other main thing I'd say is it's it could, the main difference has been, as, as opposed to five years ago, I think that shortage of providers is really profoundly felt. Like, if you go talk to any health system in the U.S., they will tell you, we just cannot hire enough people. You know, we just don't have enough skilled labor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's created an imp impetus for we need more productivity. Let's talk about the issue of regulation, AI regulation, for a moment. Um, I know Curie was among the dozens of healthcare companies that voluntarily signed a commitment with the White House to ensure the safe development of AI. Um, what are some guardrails that you'd like to see put in place to help people keep feeling confident about AI? Well, I, I think one of the things that I would I would want people in in the regulatory sphere to understand is the big rise over the last two years, especially in AI, is due to a new class of AI. So AI is a big class of technologies. And, and the, the kind of latest thrust in, is in this area called large language models. It's the technology behind ChatGPT, if folks have heard of that, and, and many other kind of big breakthroughs. And I think they need to be regulated differently than kind of what, what we think of as classical machine learning models. Um, I think I, I heard Ann talking a little bit in the last panel about, um, you know, d measuring the data sources that go in. And one of the things that is really tricky about that for language models is that it actually is the breadth and diversity of data that make them so successful. So um, it's hard when you hear people calling for regulating these models on, um, say, let's make sure that they're only trained on 
healthcare specific data. What we've actually seen in both testing our own models kind of t trained on smaller scale healthcare data and more general models is that the general models often outperform the data specific, healthcare specific models. And that I, I think leads to some challenges in regulation and especially in measuring the, the data that these things are trained on. What I would suggest is that we use the, the pathways that exist and regulate these models on their outputs and on the guardrails that are put around them. So uh, I think a lot of companies like ours are investing in controls around the output of these models, things like preventing them from outputting clinical decisions directly, et cetera, that, that I think are really important. And I would encourage folks to look more along those lines for regulatory. Do you, have, do you have any concerns that we could see some kind of over-regulation that could hamper innovation? Yeah, yes, sure. I mean, I mean, without knowing the specifics of the regulation being proposed, sure. But, you know, it's pretty clear that there will need to be regulation. The, main th the other thing I would just say is the regulatory bodies that exist and have experience with this stuff are best positioned to do more work here. Like the FDA has done a lot of work over the last 10 years on regulating AI. I, I would rather lean on that expertise than new expertise uh, on how to regulate these things because getting up to speed is a 10 year journey. Well, this is the Washington Post, so I can't let you go without a politics question. Um, <laughs> as you know, we're in an election year, and there's a new super PAC you've donated to that's helping Dean Phillip, Phillips in his attempts to defeat Biden. Uh, and this super PAC launched a Dean bot, which is one of the first known uses of AI in a political campaign, and a lot of questions around that. But I'm wondering what role you think uh, AI should have in elections. Uh, well, certainly, I think there's a lot of consternation about the role AI can play in, in, in elections, and I think it's well-deserved. Um, but I also think there's an upside. And you know, one of the things that, that I feel is that um, every American should be able to have a conversation directly with some form of their politicians and their elected officials. And so part of you know, my thinking here is, if there's a form of AI that everyone can talk to and then aggregated learnings and observations can be surfaced to candidates, I actually think that's a pretty compelling way to give Americans their voice back. Um, and you know, I, I think we'll learn whether these things work or not, but I certainly would like to see an America where the average American has a more direct voice to their elected officials than they do today. Well, on a final note, uh, we've heard a lot about the promise and perils of AI, but what are you most hopeful for when it comes to AI as you look forward? Um, I am very optimistic if we look structurally at US healthcare that AI can make a big difference. I mean, we have a massive access gap. If you, if you go talk to any provider group across the country, they typically don't want to serve the average Medicaid patient, which are our patients who need the most care. And I think we only have one way of bringing that kind of Mayo Clinic surgeon to all of these folks, and it's through the use of technology. And, and I really genuinely do believe that we're kind of at a, at a point where in the next decade or so, it, it's an achievable vision. Well, Neil, we are out of time, and we'll have to leave it there. But thank you for joining us today. Thanks, folks.
And thanks to our audience for joining us today. That concludes our program. For more of these important conversations, sign up for a Washington Post subscription. You can get a free trial by visiting wapo.st backslash live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.